Amen? That's wonderful. If you would stand up, please. God bless you. You've been sitting for a while. And then a little while. I want you to look at your neighbor. And I want you to be honest with him. You can look at him and say, you handsome. Or you can say, you ugly. (laughs) Then I want you to give him a holy kiss. And say, in Jesus, we're all beautiful. Now, here's what I'd like you to do while you're standing up. Uh, I, I am a teacher. I love to enjoy in teaching the Word. And I think with well, a close parallel to teaching is this. I love to see the whites of people's eyes. You folk in the back, out of the will of God. So here's what I'd like us to do. Pick up your Bibles and walk. So if I could ask maybe the, 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 the ten back rows... Would you just bless me and come on down front where those who are saved are? And maybe it'll rub off a little bit. I, I listen, you'll never invite me back again. I know. But just come on down. If the, the top, the back rows, come on up so I can see the whites of your eyes. Tonight, I'm going to maybe just do a little bit more of an inductive study with you. I think you were ex- exhorted pretty heavily yesterday morning and night. So come on down. Come on down. Bless me. Keep coming. Amen, Pastor. Look at these folks coming down the aisle. Yes. I see those hands. And this is the first time since I've been here that we emptied out the back rows. This is great. Won't have me again, will you? Very good. All right, you may be seated. What a joy to hear the stories tonight. These are just great testimonies. Lorraine, preach it, sister. Yeah, she was cut loose on us. But there is a great need, and certainly the Islamic world's on the move. I think we're going to hear about that more in the second half of the week. I think one of the things that we can be encouraged by is that God is also on the move. Those of you who are fans of C.S. Lewis, Lewis would say Aslan is afoot. He's alive and well on planet Earth, and our brethren in the Latino world are being mobilized, and many of them are being called of God to serve in the Islamic context. And that is so exciting. And there's a, there are parts of Africa where our sons and daughters in the Lord there are making a real difference in the mission impulse where we served in the Philippines. It's exciting to see Filipinos now standing side by side, rightfully, in the call of God to serve that glorious gospel message. You know, it, it's an it, it always it's an ideal. Um, I've always had a dream, although I admit, from a North American perspective, it was very difficult to achieve. The um, the um, ethnic diversity of this church is not typical in North America. Uh, in our mission, when I was the president at Crossworld, we had uh, 400 missionaries. Probably about 15 of them were African American. Of the approximately 40 plus thousand missionaries in any given year over the last 15 years, uh, coming out of North America to the nations, 300 of them were African American. And so we had a burden to uh, work with our African American brethren. I got to know a number of pastors very well. Sterling and I hosted African-American mission summits. And it would be actually, for me, quite exhilarating to be in a room with about 60, 70 
leaders in the African-American context just for a summit to begin to give them a forum and a voice to speak to one another on God's heart for the nations. Um, one of the difficulties was, and this one caught me a little bit off guard, um, I, I had a primarily an Anglo organization that struggled to allow them to have a voice in our organization. Now that one caught me off guard. And I confess to you, it was a bit of a quandary for me. So Sterling and I now host our uh, Emerging Leader Summits for young leaders. Because now my hope is, <laughs> I've about given up on us old folk. Uh, I, I, my hope is that the younger generations coming up will permit multicultural teams. And then here's my thought. You don't even have to preach. You have a multicultural team landing on a shore. Just by virtue of the fact that multiple cultures are standing linked arms side by side, smacks of reconciliation. It announces that Jesus redeems across the divide of races and cultures. It's a beautiful thing to me. It's a high ideal. <laughs> I'll confess it's difficult to achieve up north. I think what you have uh, modeled for Sterling and me these days that we're here with you, don't take for granted. And by all means, please send out multicultural teams. I, I love Pastor's emphasis yesterday where he's saying that uh, to, to you as a congregation, you're 40 years, you're doing these things, right? Forty years. By the way, just out of curiosity, how many have been here? These are extra eternal brownie points. Okay, How many have been here for all 40 missions conferences? This is awesome. Man, yeah, man, I'd give you guys a standing ovation. This is good stuff. Amen. That, that speaks of a level of faithfulness that to me is exciting. And on behalf of those of us you've supported... And, and, and your teams that you've sent out. That's, just, that's exciting. Um, so you think about what you do as a church. Don't, don't lose sight of that. It's a beautiful thing. And I think it would just be cool that you would send uh, your sons and daughters in, in multiple teams. And you know the, the funny part about it is the world just doesn't know what to do with that. You know, they, they can maybe explain away a white gospel, for instance. And, and many try to. And that's... It's up. You deal with it, right? But I'll tell you what, they have a hard time explaining when it comes from multiple cultures. And multiple cultures who love one another. Who have learned to work through their differences without killing one another. And you last long enough to announce Jesus is Lord. And the cultures of the world look in on that and they say, this is different. And then once in a while they ask, tell us about the hope that lies within you. And there you begin with Jesus. So it's a beautiful thing, and I praise God for you and for your flock. I thought, God love you yesterday. You know, in the morning we went after the jugular. I asked you to stand if you're sensing maybe you're at least willing to say, God, uh, call me to the nations. And that was a beautiful thing. A number of you stood and were praying for you as you just continued that process. I appreciated the pastor's comment yesterday. Every conference we would love to see impulses from within this congregation thinking about the nation's God's call and that you'd get yourself ready to go. That to me is very exciting. And these sorts of conferences stimulate you. (laughs) Can I I also just say, I don't know what I was thinking, Pastor. I envisioned Monday nights. Nobody does Jesus on Monday nights, right? You're here. You guys are crazy. 
You're a Mondayers, and here you are. It just blesses me to see folk willing to come out on a Monday night and give consideration to Jesus at his heart for the nation. This is glorious. So I applaud you for truly giving time in your schedules to do this. This is so cool. Yeah, amen. I, this, this to me is exciting. We, as a, as a group of missionaries, we applaud you for taking us seriously in God's call in our lives. This is, this is marvelous. I, I just think it's exciting to see. And then last night, we just took a little bit of time to consider joining the, the support team here. Uh, and, and you're part of the prayer network and the support base for your missionaries. And I'm holding you hostage to that. So by tomorrow night, I'll be cracking the whip. You know, you tell me now if everybody in the church who are on the rolls aren't part of the team at some point. And we just emphasized that just a little bit as well last night, giving consideration to that. That's, I think, an important component of what God yet wants to do in our midst. When we were at uh, Liberty University uh, teaching, I uh, just had a uh, it, it opened up in our hearts. Sterling and mine, the the need for and the vision to train men and women in ministry. And in those years, over the last couple of days, we've had time with Richard and Andrea. uh, And uh, I knew Richard uh, at least a little bit from our days at Liberty, especially I knew his dad, David Well. Uh, Andrea I knew, but I knew her sister better. We, Sterling and I taught her sister, Angela, who just got in from the islands, and he, she's here with us tonight. And it's just wonderful to have Angela here, and she has become very dear to Sterling and me over the years, and the, the years that we were, we were um, teaching there. Uh, Sterling and I, in, in the year 2000, were getting ready to be called by God uh, to lead Crossworld, so we were leaving the university, setting to move back into a leadership administration in our in our uh, the mission that we had served under. And wouldn't you know it, on our last day there, the students, a whole bunch of them, got us into a classroom, had a beautiful cake ready for us. And then they did this to us, and I, and I was boohooing for days. She was such a real rascal. Um, they got a wash basin, and they got some water, and they got some towels. And wouldn't you know it, these dear students washed our feet. They prayed over us. Yeah, and they sent us forth. I, I'm delighted to give students degrees. And it's important. It, it represents some discipline, some mental discipline and preparation to handle the word well. But I sure do love it when they put the degree of the towel around their arms. And they take that towel and they wash the feet of the peoples of the world. Introducing to them our great Jesus so when we raise up a generation of towel washers, count me in. I'm there. Amen. It's a beautiful thing. So how about tonight? Can I, can I do a little bit of teaching tonight on the area of evangelism? Some things that we have learned over the years in, in, in uh, bringing our faith to bear upon the peoples God has served us. I'm going to just teach you three simple principles tonight that I think would be very relevant no matter the culture. Okay, in a sense, we're going to learn in, in small measure how God does evangelism. You ever think about God doing evangelism? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Again, thank you, too, for your wonderful hospitality and wonderful bottles of water. You're going to need your Bible tonight. 
as we walk through. Now, oh, and one more thing, please. You are praying over the uh, biblical principles related to Calvary Bible Church's Faith Promise Investment Plan. I hope you loved the pastor's presentation Sunday morning. This was great. So you're praying now, this whole week, asking God, God, what do you want us to give sacrificially this coming year? So please be in prayer for that. I'll, I'll make comment to that again tomorrow night in my last session with you. Tomorrow night, by the way, we're going to take a look at the uh, not just the church triumphant, but we're going to talk a little bit tomorrow night about what kind of church is church triumphant. And I think you're going to be a little bit surprised. And what we discover tomorrow night should be encouragement. So come on out again. <laughs> All right. So here we're going to take a look at three basic principles on evangelism. Now, when you think about evangelism, we often think from the vantage point of us sharing the good news. But before we even get there, you, you would probably understand the basic principles of interpreting the Bible. Oftentimes, I like to help folks understand the Bible by way of paragraphs. If the NIV, or depending on the translation that you may use, when you get to a particular section of Scripture, to help unlock it, oftentimes we're looking for words of contrast. Words like, but, although, therefore. They, they give us some sense, don't they, of a flow of a text. But I think equally important is to look for repeating words. When you see repeating words in a context, that also gives us a bit of a key to unlock a passage for us. And so that's what I want you to do tonight. I want you to help me discover principle number one. Paul is going to talk about evangelism, but I think we're going to be surprised about who the star evangelist is in this passage. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So here's what I want you to do now. Maybe if you have your ball pen or a pencil, what I'd like you to do is I want you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 through 10. Read it slowly. And every time you come to the word Lord or God, I'd like you to underline it. Then when you're finished, I want you to go back and count them up. And then when you're finished, look up at me. I know you're done. And we're going to take a look at... This particular passage, the star evangelist, 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 to 10. Lord or God? Go. What did, you, what did you discover? How many times do we see Lord or God in verses 5 to 10? Seven. 
Isn't it fascinating? Paul, he's going to be trying to help Corinth understand that divisions in the church are inconsistent with how God brought them to himself. So that's where he's getting to in his argumentation now. He's trying to help Corinth understand your divisions are inconsistent with God himself. For he's trying to help them understand how God invaded a pagan culture. Who then would be the star witness in this great invasion? Paul says over and over again, God, 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 Lord, God. Let's read through the passage together. Let me highlight it with you. Verse 5, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants. Diakonos, uh, these are shoeshine boys, commode cleaners, the ones that are in the bathroom shining and buffing up the, the toilets for us. Paul says, we're those, the, we're those, don't accentuate us, in whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. Verse 6, I planted, Apollos watered. See that word, but? Circle that right there in your Bibles. But God gave the growth. Verse 7, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but, circle that again, you see it? But only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Thank you, Lord. Verse 9, for we are God's fellow workers. You ever see yourself that way? You're engaged in ministry. Guess who is your partner? It's pretty cool. Me and God. That's not bad, especially in your darkest moments when the battle seems to be at its worst. It's not a bad thought to step back and say, oh, yeah, by the way, it's me and God. We are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building, according to the grace of God given to me. Like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. But let each one of us take care how he builds upon it. So seven times, over and over again, Paul is trying to help Corinth understand that while human instruments were involved in this process of bringing the gospel to them, who was the star witness of their conversion? God himself. And that's what Paul's trying to draw attention to in this particular passage. Here's how I like to say it. Evangelism. Principle number one. Evangelism is teaming up with God. Long before Paul gets to chapter 9, and we'll look in a moment at the end of chapter 9 strategy, human instrumentation, human strategy, human thinking, human processes, and bringing the gospel to bear... Yeah, that's chapter 9. But isn't it instructive that before chapter 9, there's something called chapter 3? Did you ever notice in your math that 3 precedes 9? Did you, you ever discover that? Isn't that fascinating? 3, and over and over again, it's God. God was the one to invade this pagan culture. And praise the Lord, he was pleased to use humans. He used the Apollos, he used the Pauls. Now, why is that important? I think that's important for a very, very primary reason. I used to ask this question. I stopped asking it after a while. Why do saints, saints who love the Lord, saints who have been in the faith for a while, why do they not share their faith? 
So I used to, I used to do this survey as I would travel around and I would speak. And I would especially try to do it in small groups, Sunday school groups, the, the ones who were probably at a higher level of commitment to the Lord. And over and over and over again, I discovered there was one primary reason why believers don't share their faith, even though they want to. Even though that they have a desire. Even though maybe even they have a passion, but they get derailed. I, I came to call it, I think in the English language, do you realize how, how many good, solid curse words we have in English that are four letters? I came to call it the Christian curse word, because it's got four letters. It is the primary reason why saints struggle to share their faith. You might even know the word. F. E. A. R. I now call it the, the Christian curse word because we struggle. All the investment and the energy that God has poured into a guy like Jim O'Neill. I still get these moments and these bouts of fear. And I'm thinking, God has invested thousands of dollars in my ministry preparation. And I still battle with F-E-A-R. Do you? Thought number one. Principle number one. Evangelism is teaming up with God. It is not God teaming up with me. Now, maybe just that thought alone will help you. It is not me laboring and struggling and, oh yeah, God, show up, please. It is assuming God is already at work in the world, in human hearts, and now my task is to cooperate with Him. To find out where he is at work in human lives and cooperate with him right at that point. And try to take a person the next step and the next step and the next step on their journey. Evangelism is teaming up with God. Principle number two. Evangelism is a process. Now, I, I, got, this one, I got this one backwards and I struggled with it for, for a while. Evangelism is a process. Salvation is a decision. I used to think evangelism and salvation were all in 20 minutes. When I came to faith, uh, I, uh, I was introduced to the four spiritual laws. That was the big thing back in the mid-70s. And I used to think that everybody would get saved on a napkin uh, in the restaurants in 20 minutes. All I had to do was draw the bridge. And that's a bit difficult to see folks in 20 minutes. And over time, it, it, it dawned on me in this process of uh, engaging the world with the gospel and looking at biblical principles, that oftentimes evangelism itself is the process. How does Paul describe it? He pulls out a term. I don't know, was he sitting down one day just watching farmers? But he pulls out this agricultural model. In verse 6 he says, I planted Apollos watered and but God gave the increase so there's this time in this season of planting there's this time in the season of watering and then there's the time God gives the increase so you see this it's a process isn't it and then salvation comes you believe you call you believe you are saved we saw that Sunday morning so I got saved reading the late great planet Earth. 
a great Bible prophecy book of the mid-1970s. I discovered when I came to faith that in the Christian faith they had churches. That was pretty exciting. Growing up in the projects near Philly, I, I didn't know there were churches. I discovered they had Christian bookstores. Isn't that cool? And I discovered that there were books. So you know what I did? I thought all my friends, all the guys I did drugs with, that they would get saved just like me. So you know what I did? I went out and bought a box full of the late great planet Earth. And I ran literally with that box all over the city to all my buds. And I gave them the book and I said, you got to read this, 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 you got to read this. And I said, I'll be back. And I came back in two weeks. Did you read it? 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 I gave out at least 40 copies and I got no royalties on it. And I went back and I asked them, did you get saved? And they looked at me and they said, no. No, 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 chapter 8. And they said, after chapter 7, before chapter 9. No, 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 no. That's where I'd gotten saved. That's chapter 8 with the plan of salvation. You realize not a single one of my friends got saved at chapter 8. What did I need to learn? Soil wasn't ready, was it? There's this process, isn't there? Planting and watering, God gives the increase. Now, here's the question that helps me. And I wonder if this question would aid you in the process of you involved in the world that God has called you to. And the people that God has brought into your world. Maybe this question would help you too. You're engaging neighbor, bus, train. You guys have trains down here? No trains, okay. Wait to get up north. Planes, boats. Yeah, I love the ferry. You ask them this question. In the course of this conversation, you're engaging God. And quietly in your heart, you ask God this, God, where are you at work in this person's life? God, where are you at work in this person's life? Say it with me. God, where are you at work in this person's life? One more time. God, where are you at work in this person's life? Do you know how much that question has helped me over the years? Immediately it alerts my heart to the fact that it's not all about me. God cares for them so much more than I do. And God's already been at work. So I put it to the test a number of years ago. I found myself overseeing students at Liberty University when we were still students there. In 1980, I took 60 students to New York City. And for that summer... I asked the students, when we lead someone to Christ, I would like, if possible, for you within 24 hours to get back to them and begin the process of growing them in their newfound faith. But I would also like you to find out if they had had any exposure to the gospel prior to our sharing. I was kind of testing this idea. That summer, we led 600 people to Christ on the island of Manhattan in New York City. We got back to all 600. Of the 600, guess how many had had exposure to the gospel prior to our glorious arrival? 
599. That was a profound reminder to me that while I could have written the book talking about the great evangelist that I am, the reality was God was already at work in their hearts and lives, and we came at the point of but. Somebody planted, somebody watered, but at the point of harvest, we were privileged to be there. And it was just a profound reminder to me that God was already at work in their hearts and their lives. And we were privileged to meet up with God at just that unusual intersection of time. And we took them one step further into the family of God. And then they began their process of growth in this newfound faith. God, where are you at work in this person's life? One plants, one waters, God gives the increase. Are they grappling with God? Stay there for a little bit. So they feel pretty good about themselves. They don't see that they're sinners. You, you, you need to help them begin to understand how they stand before a holy God. Who, who is Jesus? Unpack that a little bit if they're struggling with Him. The place of faith and decision. What is faith? Helping them to understand that in the process of just bringing them to the place where they come by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on behalf of their sins. Teaming up with God, God the master evangelist. Number two, it's often a process. Now once in a while God gives you the permission to, to plant the seed right there and you see somebody come to harvest. In all of our ministry years, I've only ever had one person that I'm aware of hear the gospel message from our lips for the first time and get saved. And we're in ministry over 32 years now. Uh, that, that ought to tell us something. Okay, so where are we then at the level of the human side, the human component? Let's take a look together. Look at verse 10. Notice what Paul's going to tell us here in verse 10. Verse 10, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. But let each one take care how he builds upon it. Isn't it interesting? Paul changed his metaphors now. One minute, right? He's out in the field. <laughs> he's planting and, he, and you see the crops coming up. Next minute, he's in the city. And now he, he pulls out an urban term. And he uses this word, architon, for the skilled master builder. Greek word, architon. What does that sound like in English? Isn't that interesting? Transliterated. You can see it coming in English. Architect. What does that suggest? Well, well it carries the idea of, of premeditation. Uh, the fact that there's strategy. The fact that there's something that somebody is actually thinking through to try to construct a building. So now Paul shifts metaphors on us, and he calls himself a skilled master builder, an architon. I'm an architon in this process of getting the gospel out. So here now is how Paul would say it. If God is here in this passage seven times, if you're taking notes, at another point in time, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Verses 19 through 23, depending on your translation, somewhere between 12 and 14 times, Paul uses first person singular pronoun, I, me, my. And here's his concluding thought. I do all possible things by all possible means so that by all of these possible means I might see some saved. So... 
This may be a bit hard for us to appreciate, but here's the point. Do you realize that Paul came to understand uniquely among of us, his apostolic brethren, among the brethren, he was unique in this clear understanding how you approach an audience impacts receptivity. Paul learned it is not wise to do a weenie roast with Jews. They would have fried him. But a weenie roast with Gentiles, that made sense. And so Paul would do a weenie roast with Gentiles. He broke through in this process. So you understand your culture. What makes sense apart from violating the law of God... You engage. And that's the beauty of our task, serving across the cultural divide. It wasn't until the end of our ministries, and I, we didn't have the cultural tools at the front end of our ministries, to be honest with you. Don Smith was my mentor in my doctoral work. And, and Don's book, Creating Understanding, in my mind, is the finest single tool to help equip missionaries. We didn't pick that up till toward the end. Do you know what the Boholano loves? We didn't integrate it into anything in the foundation of our ministries on the island of Bohol. They love poetry. Do you know how much scripture is poetry? What a golden opportunity we missed in the planting of our churches. We, we didn't give them free expression of that beautiful poetic attribute of their cultures because we didn't see it. Do you know why we didn't see it? Because poetry was not part of Philadelphia culture. That's why. I didn't see it. Can you use poetry in evangelism? Absolutely. Can you use music in evangelism? Absolutely. Can you use drama, dance? Absolutely. But you, you, you kind of miss these things, don't you? In this process. And we didn't see it, did we? Now, I want to leave you with what I would consider to be the most practical tool that you could have in your ministry arsenal. So I'm going to deal with something very, very practical. The Apostle Paul, for those of you who like to dig a little bit deeper, in the first half of Paul's missionary career, Dr. Luke in the book of Acts uses monologue verbs to describe Paul's evangelism. Do you realize, though, something happened? The further Paul got into Gentile territory, the verb changes. And over six times, Dr. Luke describes Paul using the word in his evangelism, dialegomai. Dialogue. What did Paul learn in his evangelism that helped him to shift some to where he was process-oriented more now as he moved further and further into Gentile territory? And then there is one, one tool that I think is the most practical tool that a believer of Jesus Christ can arm himself with. I want to show it to you. <coughs> Jump over with me to Acts chapter 8, please. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. Fascinating story. Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. I'm thinking it's a story that you know well. Talk about a prepared audience, right? Verse 26. Okay? Acts chapter 8, verse 26. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. 
This is the desert place. And he rose and he went. Now, can I give you a hint? If the Spirit of God shows up and says, you probably should pay attention. Okay? And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasury. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning seated in his chariot. So that's another clue. This guy's coming out of Jerusalem in a time of worship, a prominent position in Candace's court. Verse 28, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran over to him, heard what he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. Asked, Do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I unless somebody guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Verse 32, now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from him from the earth. The eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, Bible students, where was that scripture found? Be quiet, Pastor. Isaiah. Where? Very good. Isaiah 53. Got it, Pastor. They got it. And as they were going along the road, they come to some water, and the eunuch says, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? Stop the chariot. Baptize him. Spirit takes him out. So here's the storyline, right? Philip, great awakening. Something to write home about. You know? He's in Samaria, and a movement of God takes place. And then the Spirit of God, totally insensitive to the moment, <laughs> takes Philip, puts him on this lonely road, and says, now go next to the chariot. Gets up next to the chariot, finds out that the, that the charioteer is up there, and this prominent official is reading from a very important book of the Old Testament Scriptures. He has come from Jerusalem, and not just any portion of Scripture, but Isaiah 53, which is this amazing picture of the suffering servant. Philip is taking all this in, and then the Spirit says, okay, get up next to it. So that's another clue, right? So here's Philip. He's chugging along, right? He doesn't have his horse, so he's got to run. There he is, right? Okay. So he's, he's accommodating his surroundings. He's listening in. Can you see Philip now with such a prepared audience? What would you do if you're Philip and all of this spiritual stimulation is in front of you? Spirit twice, snatched, speaks, charioteer, Isaiah coming from Jerusalem. Pretty important person. This is cool. Even though he just left the Great Awakening, he gets in front of the chariot. He stops and he announces, stop, halt, turn or burn, repent. Or perish. <laughs> Can you see it now? <laughs> it's amazing what Philip doesn't do. You know, he didn't have the placard on, did he? You know, it's poor fellow. He did something that was so practical that all of us can do it. Now, you cannot sit there and tell me you can't do this because I have watched you now for two days. And do you know what I observe about you as a congregation? You like to talk. <laughs> I've been watching you. And I'll just bet from time to time in your conversations with one another, you actually do this. Do you know the brilliance of Philip's strategy? 
was the same strategy. The primary method of evangelism of the Lord Jesus was one important thing. It's recorded 100 times in the Gospels. What was the primary method of evangelism by the Lord Jesus? Help me. Ask questions. See what Philip did? Hey, do you understand what you're reading? I think one of the most practical things you and I can do to try to discern where God is at work in a person's life is ask. People really don't mind religious conversations. If we but ask with a sincere heart and a genuineness, I find people very willing to open up. Don't you? And with your brethren, did you ever notice how well they respond when you show genuine interest and you ask questions? And they want to know that they're being heard. They'll share their heart. What's a practical tool you can give yourself? Ask questions. And you know, this is the kind of tool that the more you do it, the better you get. And having watched you for two days, you're pretty good at something. Could that be something that God could use in your world as you're engaging your community and you're constantly seeking to cooperate with the Spirit of God to help that person take one step closer in the process of the planting, the watering, but God gives the increase. God invaded a pagan culture like Corinth. Can God invade Nassau? Because you are assigned here by God. As I said Sunday morning, the reason why I assume you're here and not there is because God has put you on assignment here to be on mission for Him. Otherwise, if you belong there, you better get there. So He has you here. Then you begin to cooperate with the Spirit of God. And you say, Spirit of God, help me as I engage my world. Spirit of God, I battle with the case of... And then tell them, what is it, fear? Is it a lack of knowledge? Do you feel like there, there's, some, there's some knowledge deficiencies? Fine. That, that's answerable. You, know, you can grow yourself up. If it's something else, figure it out. Team up with God. Ask Him, where are you at work in this person's life, O oh Father? And then, ask them. It's often been said, and I think it's a truism. People will guide you to where they need to find Jesus, if we but ask Him. Teaming up with God, process, often requiring strategy. Paul says, I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might see some saved. It's a beautiful thing to see a great church like this, assigned by the Master to this place for this time. It's a beautiful task you've been given. And I suspect that you have a couple of sinners in the neighborhood. If that's the case, you're a marvelous candidate to be used by the Master in the process of planting the gospel into their precious hearts. Grow this flock because you are teaming up with God to reach your world. Because it's a beautiful thing to think that God has assigned you here for this time. I'm not sure you're going to say this, but... Are you ready for this? I'm going to put a heavy one on you tonight, even though it was just a teaching time. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.
I didn't think I'd get a hearty amen on that one. <laughs> but they're going to go home mumbling, Pastor, oh me. All right, come on back out tomorrow night, and we'll conclude our time. Father, it is a, it's actually an encouragement to us to, lo- to know that you are Lord, that you are sovereign, that you do care for the peoples of the world. But I think just as important, Lord, while we have been concentrating on the nations these days, it's a en- refreshment to us to know that you even want to use us, that you care about Nassau, you care about the Bahamas, you care about the peoples that are here. Jesus died for them, and you have assigned these dear ones to be here for this time, and we thank you for it. As we meditate upon these thoughts and these ideas, strengthen us for the days to come, for the task at hand, to team up with you, to see the gospel planted in the hearts of our friends, so that they too might know our Lord Jesus and grow in him, and then reproduce. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Hey, that's better.